Hello and welcome. My name is Chris Connor, and I'm your host for this series of interviews produced by Q Squared Solutions. I'm having conversations with experts sharing their thoughts on laboratory considerations for immuno-oncology and companion diagnostics development. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Edinger, the Scientific Advisor for Flow Cytometry at Q Squared Solutions. As the scientific advisor, Mark is responsible for flow cytometry assay design and implementation. He has been a pioneer in the field of flow cytometry since the 1970s. Mark, welcome. Glad to be here. A lot has changed in the last few years around flow cytometry. Would you briefly describe some of the recent technical advances in that field? Yeah, yeah, there's been uh, essentially four, and they're in three different categories. So there's instrumentation, and then reagents themselves, and then software, and specifically algorithms uh, that are dedicated to the analysis, extended analysis of flow cytometry data. So on the instrumentation side, the two major developments have really been mass spec flow cytometry, which is a machine called Cytoff, and, and allows uh, the use of metals rather than fluorochromes uh, conjugated to antibodies to detect the antigens of interest. Um, it was introduced, must be five or six years ago, maybe even longer uh, in its infancy, but it really pushed the number of analytes that we could look at at the same time uh, by flow cytometry, which is really an excellent tool for monitoring the tumor microenvironment where we're looking at you know T-cell populations, tumor populations, and then the status of those T-cell populations and some other populations, not just T-cells. And then it took fluorescence technology a while to catch up, but now coarse wavelength division multiplexing, which people refer to as spectral flow cytometry has come about, uh, really pioneered by early machines from Sony, uh, really now championed by a company called Cytec, and they have a, a machine called the Aurora that allows 20 plus, maybe even more with additional lasers, fluorochromes to be detected simultaneously. In fact, ones that you couldn't traditionally run together because of spectral overlap can be detected on that machine. So the two major advances from an instrumentation standpoint are really uh, coarse wavelength division multiplexing, which is essentially the, the, the best implementation so far is the SciTech Aurora. And then mass spec flow from a company called Fluidime, and that's machines are, it's called Cytop, and there's various instruments that have been, actually one instrument that's evolved over time that people are using. On the reagent side, we've had polymer fluorochromes that have come about. And so for a long time, we had a fairly fixed set of fluorochromes. Every once in a while, there would be one or two new ones, but there's been whole new families of fluorochromes that have been uh, come about from a company called Serogen, which has been purchased by Beckton Dickinson. And there's a new whole series of violet dyes. There's new blue excited dyes, a line of uh, at least one new 561 excited, also blue excited dye that have come up. There may be more to come because you really can extrapolate on how these uh, fluorochromes are constructed in terms of donors and acceptors. So I, I suspect that family of floors will grow over time. The other thing that's happened, especially with uh, coarse wavelength division multiplexing, we've, we've been able to go back and rediscover old forgotten dyes that didn't really fit on the more traditional flow cytometers. A good example of this would be Alexa 660. There really was no space between APC and Alexa 647 and Alexa 700 for an additional floor because of spread and spillover, but now because of the way that fluorochromes can be unmixed on the newer uh, coarse wavelength division multiplexing machines, we can run a dye like Alexa 660, which is very bright. So we have additional fluorochromes off of laser lines that we didn't previously have. 
The other thing that's happened is we've gone to working in the cloud on flow cytometry, which has made the sharing of experiments and data much more uh, easy uh, and it allows um, enables collaboration uh, to a degree that we didn't really have before. And along with that, there's new algorithms that have evolved for handling the more complex data coming from the spectral and the, and the CYTOP instruments. And there's Tisney, Visney, Spade, Flowsum, uh, Citrus. There's a bunch of new algorithms that allows us to take very complex data sets and deconvolve them into indiv individual functional groups and lineages and the status of those lineages which really gives us an incredible amount of information. When I first started in flow cytometry, we only we only had linear, we had FITSI, we had rhodamine, we had no computers, no monoclonal antibodies. So in, in my life in flow cytometry, things have evolved incredibly to the point now where we can we can look at 30 of some markers simultaneously and take a snapshot of a tumor microenvironment and see interactions we couldn't previously find. And the nice thing about that is flow cytometry is really driving uh, the development of new new therapeutics for immuno-oncology because we have the ability to look at the entire environment, which we didn't have previously. Yeah, we're going to get back to that tumor microenvironment. We just talked about, or you just described, all those advances in the technology around flow cytometry. What kinds of new or better information is available because of those advances and how does that help drive decisions in the clinical trial process around immuno-oncology? So I guess the way I would approach that is to say that because of research that's gone on with these new tools in the, in the academic circles, we've discovered uh, the ability to monitor things um, like the inhibition of the immune system by expression of markers on tumors that are called checkpoint inhibitors that we, didn't, we weren't aware of before. We're aware of things like how to describe when a T cell is exhausted in addition to when it's activated. And we've learned more about, through the use of these new tools and basic research uh, in, in the academic sphere, new populations and new markers that can be uh, discovered within the tumor microenvironment that affect the interaction between the, the, the host immune system and the tumor. For example, there's a whole list of new uh, checkpoint inhibitors like PD-1, uh, CT, CTLA-4, CD-152, and, and a multitude of other CD-47 that have been described, and their ligands on T cells and immune cells, not just T cells, that allows the tumor to actively turn off the host response to the tumor that prevent the tumor from being killed by the immune system. We weren't aware of these, many of these, until we had the, the tools that allowed us to look at many more markers simultaneously. For instance, markers of T-cell activation were been around for a long time, but that list has expanded remarkably now, and the list, the markers of T-cell exhaustion have really expanded as well, and some of those were not discovered until relatively recently in the last five or six years. So now we're beginning, and T-regulatory cells as well, cells that help regulate the T-cell response. So we've discovered, discovered these new categories of cells. We've found a way to describe them, and now we can look at them because of the ability to not only look at them, but their functional status and the entire tumor microenvironment at the same time. And we're at the point now where we can take a snapshot of the tumor microenvironment, which allows us to monitor how a therapeutic is working, basically. How is it actually efficacious? Does it does it really allow the immune system to be reactivated and come in and, and destroy the tumor? So we're able to, to monitor that. We've also begun doing things that are called receptor occupancy assays. 
And so we can look at the levels of bindings of therapeutics for target cells to see whether or not we're actually getting the level of binding we're expecting. Along with that, we can look at activation status and what else is going on in their cell and on, on, on those particular cells. And the subsets we define, functional subsets we define for those cells. So I think the tools have, have allowed discovery that is now being employed in the pharmaceutical companies and the biotechs to really begin to use that information in the clinical setting and to allow patients to uh, benefit from that basic research. I think that's the best way that, you know, what these new advances in flow cytometry have been, uh, in the, West, the best way they've been engaged and how they're, they're really showing great benefit at the patient level. Yeah, that's all very exciting. So let's talk then about companion diagnostics. Can you give us some examples about how flow cytometry is used in creating and developing companion diagnostics? The best example and probably the most straightforward is just looking at to see whether certain checkpoint inhibitors are uh, are on the tumor, if the tumor actually uh, has been shutting down the immune system. So we could screen patients using companion diagnostics to see which checkpoint inhibitors may be engaged uh, in a particular tumor microenvironment uh, that's preventing the, the immune response, and then come in and now that, you know, once we see which ones are expressed, we can go in and actively block them with the therapeutics that bind them and then prevent them from interacting with the immune cells to turn them off, right? And there's also some work going on in, on other ways of activating the immune response that can be used in tandem with checkpoint inhibitors. And so there's a whole group of companion therapies that are aided by uh, maybe one or two companion diagnostics that indicate which of those or the combination of those is most uh, efficacious. So one of the themes of this whole series has been the importance of early engagement between sponsors and CROs. Talk about that in terms of setting up the appropriate panels for a flow cytometry assay. Yes, yeah, so we're huge proponents of, of early engagement and, and close collaboration with sponsors. Nothing is more not more of an impediment to a successful collaboration than trying to, to communicate by email or a series of documents. And it's been our experience that regular phone calls with sponsors we work with on an ongoing basis or phone calls at the start of a particular trial or study where we can have a meeting of scientists so we don't have a lot of intermediaries uh, delivering documents and going back and forth and asking questions. It's better and more efficient in terms of time. And uh, the transfer of information, if we actually have a scientist-to-scientist -scientist conversation. So we regularly have phone calls with any number of sponsors, and we encourage um, the setting up of early communication, even if there's an interest in perhaps working with us and, and having us uh, create assays for a given trial. And that's worked extremely well. And what we found is it allows us to refine assays over over time to exactly produce the result that's desired, uh, you know, the, the kind of monitoring of a that's desired by the by the panel. And it's it's interesting how there's uh, learning going back back and forth in both directions in terms of what their goals are and what we're able to provide and our knowledge. And that always, with very few exceptions, allows us to build a more streamlined, better, more focused panel. Uh, to exactly meet the needs of the trial. And uh, during the process of assay validation, we actually send data back and forth, look at uh, how the assay development is evolving, 
uh, and work very closely with the scientists who are involved directly in the trial. And we found that to be invaluable, uh, really an invaluable approach to really um, doing good work and producing results that actually have um, value. It sounds like that time savings, it, it makes complete sense you know, as an outsider listening in. Yeah, nothing's more frustrating than going than going back and forth on 20 emails, and each one's a different question that's, that was evolved from the previous one, and it could have been the three-minute conversation. Right. And it, that, those emails take days, whereas the conversation takes minutes. It's much more efficient. And in terms of just setting up the assay itself, that takes a significant amount of time on its own, right? Well, you know, the interesting, the interesting thing about that is the actual work itself on the bench is not that long. What takes time is the documentation, setting up the database, putting together the kits, all the things that go together with it are actually, other than the actual validation itself, the actual bench work to build the assay and, and put it in the, in the production, it, it not as difficult as everything that goes around it. So it, it's a large effort from many different groups within uh, Q-squared solutions, and each of those groups has its own, its own function and takes, I think, somewhere between eight to 12 weeks to put up a series of assays for a clinical trial all the way to when it's in production and uh, the databases are ready and things are ready. The actual work on the bench can take maybe three to four weeks. So you have to always keep in mind when you're setting up a trial to have enough lead time to do all the ancillary work that's required to actually put that assay into in production. If there's going to be a companion diagnostic and IVD manufacturing partners are getting involved, what are the considerations when that happens? Well, it's good to know who your partner, your manufacturing partner is going to be up front. So when you build the panel, you try to use their reagents <laughs> or, or reagents that they can purchase. That won't be a conflict that they can actually, uh, that they're manufactured in a way that they can be used in the companion diagnostic and under the conditions that are required for that manufacturing. So those are considerations up front. And then making sure that the validation is performed under the, the correct uh, regulatory guidance and, and environment, that's also very important. And to um, have an ongoing conversation about you know the goals and the, uh, of the of the validation process, and making sure that the data sets that are being produced are uh, sufficient for any submissions are to, that are to take place. So it's good to have all of those conditions defined and all of the, uh, the sort of oversight that's required in place. So my last question is, some folks might look at the availability of portable flow cytometers and wonder about the possibility of point of care applications. What does the future look like around that? I would call that highly unlikely in the near future. So. Flow cytometry is still one of those still one of those areas of practice where there's a lot of manual uh, labor involved and individual knowledge. And although we've built more expert systems over time, uh, until we've completely automated what we're doing now with the instruments that we have and the ways of setting up assays, conducting assays, automating analysis. This has been done for some other things like LSBOT, uh, another form of uh, testing for that's a that's actually a group companion to flow cytometry has been totally automated but flow cytometry itself has not been and you know one of the goals that i have in my lifetime is to completely automate flow cytometry so that it's completely reproducible so the subjectivity of the human interaction whether it's at 
panel design or validation or when the assay is actually being performed on the bench or when the data is being analyzed, the subjective judgment of where to place a particular marker, all those things go away. And once we do that with the current equipment and, and new equipment that's coming, then, we'll, then there is a possibility to go to point of care. Now, for some more simplistic assays where you're just looking for, you know, CD4 counts, you know, those things certainly could be automated. And if could have a, a dedicated device for one particular assay that was actually designed to run only that assay that could be honed to do exactly what you needed to do and no more and do it reproducibly, that's a possibility. There have been some devices that, that approach point of care for CD4 counts. But if you want a flow cytometer that's adaptive to various assays at point of care, that's a very different goal. And that's at least, I would say, 10, maybe 20 years away, even based on the fact that, you know, the, the level of te technical sophistication and capability of flow cytometry is rapidly increasing and the rate of increases is, is faster and faster over time. I think that if I saw that in the next 10 years, uh, point of care flow cytometry, I would be extremely surprised. Well, that means that you're still dependent on the expertise of the people you work with and how well they can use equipment. For instance, anyone can buy a flow cytometer, right? But putting it into practice and into production and how you standardize it and how you calibrate it and how you characterize it and how you build assays, how you set it up, how you quality control it, all those things are very important to making sure that the data that comes off of it is useful. A flow cytometer is a black box, and only, till re only until recently we were able to characterize the instrument, like in the, in the last 10 to 12 years, so that we actually knew what was going on inside that box, and we could make sure that it was performing as we intended, reproducibly, right? So it's getting better and better. You know, the, the amount of control that we have in place uh, at Q-squared solution is, is you know, maybe one-third of our entire job to make sure that we, get re that we have reproducible results off those machines on a daily basis on, on the same machine day after day and from the machines across all of our laboratories across the world. So that is a huge amount of the effort we put into what we do every day is just making sure that all the results are reproducible, the instruments are standardized, calibrated correctly, and correctly controlled. Uh, and that's a massive effort, and you would have to build all of that into a point-of-care device, which is quite an undertaking. Right. And circling back to the beginning, when you're talking about all the advances and the ability to look at multiple floors and so on, that really <clears> – and, and get all the information available from that about the tumor microenvironment isn't – is kind of the opposite of the one-assay automated solution. That's right. So what happens is, you know, here's a good example. So there was a group that tried to standardize leukemias. And so they took the existing fluorochromes at the time. They did this extensive amount of work looking at what was the optimal clone, what was the optimal conjugate, what was the optimal way of, uh, you know, of diagnosing a particular leukemia or lymphoma. And by the time they did all the work, there were all new fluorochromes out that completely obsoleted all the work they'd already done. So every time you try to you try to take what exists at some point and build a point of care and automated device or lock down a diagnostic system, what happens is the advances outstrip what you're doing, and by the time you're done, the whole game has changed. Right. Right. So at the time they did that, they were six and eight color machines, and now we're at twenty plus twenty plus color machines with all these new algorithms for analysis that, that didn't exist when they did all that work. So you're always playing catch up unless you have a flexible system and it can adapt quickly 
to the technical technological advances that are available, which is what we're doing at Q-squared Solution by bringing up coarse wavelength division uh, multiplexing with the SciTech Aurora over the next year or so. Nice. So we're, we're actually implementing 20-color machines across the world in all of our laboratories, and that'll be in Beijing and Tokyo and Singapore and Mumbai and South Africa, Edinburgh, and then Atlanta and Valencia, Atlanta, Georgia, and Valencia, California. Those will all have 20 plus color machines will be at the, when we're done implementing that, there'll be 40 machines globally. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to wrap this up. Mark Edinger, thanks so much for taking the time to explain the role of flow cytometry in immuno-oncology trials and the development of companion diagnostics. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. If listeners are interested in learning more, Q Squared Solutions is hosting a free immuno-oncology scientific symposium on March 21st, 2019 in San Francisco. To register, go to www.q2labsolutions.com events.